You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to another edition of Radio MMT. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin, and hello to our lovely listener. Thanks for joining us as we, I think of it as sort of wading through the swamp of the economy. Yes, indeed. That's, that's a, a very apt description. Hey, it's the fourth Friday of the month um, today. It is. Uh, and and we quite often uh, head down to the Union Club Hotel um, in... in uh, in Collingwood. Collingwood's a couple of blocks from here. Um, Look it up on your phone yeah. because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'll, we'll head there for a, a, a drink and a chat after yeah. the show if anybody's there. If it's just you and me, Anne, that's good. Either way, we're, we're quite happy. So that's Yeah, a, that's we'd all love good. to see you. If, if you're an hour away, start heading towards Collingwood. Yeah, and, and leave your radio on as you drive in. I was thinking about our last night mm-hmm. and what I was thinking was that you and I were playing pretty hard last night in our own ways. I was playing online in an economics course. Right, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that's, that's what you do for, for to get your kicks. That's my idea of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a course that is put on by modernmoneylab.org.au. Yeah. That's Stephen Hale and crew and it's a fantastic course a real adult education uh, environment oh so so it was a bit of a, a raunchy night doing it adult, adult education for you was <laughs> it was <laughs> i'll leave that to your imagination with all the uh financial planners and the biologists and the creative writers and yeah. all sorts of people showing up economists are people too you know and <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a single economist i'm happy to say right that's but good we're all learning about economics excellent so it is a unique course in the world it yes. Is focusing on modern monetary theory, of course, which is the style of economics that we follow, and it's putting it together with ecological economics. I'm in two minds about the the online courses. Sometimes I think, how much do I need to know? Mm. Uh, um, and but other times I think people start talking and I haven't got the answers because I don't know enough. And so I sort of think, oh, I don't know. This is probably me just making excuses so I don't uh-huh. have to study. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's far more likely. Well, how were you playing hard last night? I was doing I was doing another Ed Cooper show um, in Sydney last night at the City Recital Hall in Sydney and it was a cracker. It was a really good show. Like I, I think I might have mentioned a little while ago, I've been doing a couple of these shows and gee, he's playing well. This has got nothing to do with economics. This is just... <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed Cooper is our theme music. Uh, true, that's true. He provides the, the intro and the outro and the mid-tro stuff so he's connected to this show um, but he's playing with his band at the moment and they are playing so well you know like mm. he's he's a veteran he's been around for <laughs> for decades uh, and he's got a good crew around him he's got, got a the, lighting guy who's been around for a while too. yeah yeah true <laughs> uh, actually um the the drummer mark dawson has been around longer than me so when okay. i started doing lights for ed back in the 80s mark was already there so i've been out trumped because mark's back on the on the kit <laughs> it's the gray heads all getting together <laughs> they did a show at queenscliff the other night which i didn't do because i was doing the show and so i couldn't mm. do the, the show at queenscliff and plus there wasn't much of a lighting rig there so there's no point in me going and somebody uh, uh reported that um the uh, the crowd went crazy at the end of the night uh, it, it got so frenetic they were uh, scared that they're going to start throwing their zimmer frames at the stage <laughs> <laughs> All the oldie jokes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeez. <laughs> well, Kevin, it is a pretty cosy show tonight. It's you and me. Yep. 
But we do have two unopened letters from the Cape from Bill Mitchell, the economist who co-founded Modern Monetary Theory. Yes. I think of them as unopened when we haven't played them on air yet. Shall we We have a listen to Bill? Yes. And see what he has to say from the Cape. Excellent. That sounds great. It's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello, and here's another episode in The Letter from the Cape. There are too often used narratives that are designed to militate against government spending on welfare and infrastructure. The first is the constant use of the term taxpayers' money, which I have considered in previous podcasts. The reality is that most adults are certainly taxpayers, but our taxes do not provide any extra spending capacity to the federal government. We use the currency that the government issues. It is the government's currency, not ours, and they can spend as much of it as they desire without having to raise revenue in advance. The second source of misinformation that is used to scare us into accepting cutbacks in government spending is the debt bomb narrative, which feeds into a number of related storylines about governments forcing up borrowing costs in the private sector and leaving future generations drowning in debt. The debt bomb narrative is very powerful because it is linked back to our personal finances. We are told that the government is maxing out its credit card, spending like a drunken sailor. All metaphors designed to present an image of government as a household on a wild spending spree and soon to end up in bankruptcy, overladen with debt that our grandkids will be encumbered with. We are also told that when governments run fiscal deficits, that is, spend more than they take back in tax revenue, then they have to borrow. So the linkages are clear. To avoid setting off the debt bomb, the government needs to borrow less, which in turn means it should not run deficits. The problem with this seemingly tight causal train which seems to be as inevitable as the day turning into night, is that it is a fiction. The Australian government does not need to borrow in order to spend. When the government spends, it simply credits a bank account where the spending is destined, a digital entry. It doesn't have to have a pile of cash available or even positive balances in some other bank account that it can draw from. That is our destiny because we use the currency the government issues, which means our spending is financially constrained. But that can never be the case for the federal government unless it places voluntary restrictions on itself. Here is a story that demonstrates what is really going on. In 2001, the Australian government ran the Commonwealth Debt Management Review which was prompted by the fact that the amount of federal debt that was outstanding had fallen significantly as a result of the government running fiscal surpluses. The point was this. Given the government was spending less than its tax revenue, it stopped issuing new debt to the private markets. And, as the outstanding debt matured and was repaid in full, the stock of debt in private hands fell dramatically. Of course, the fiscal surpluses were only possible because taxation revenue continued to grow in the face of government spending cutbacks. How did that happen? This period was marked by financial market deregulation and access to credit expanded dramatically. Households borrowed heavily to fund all sorts of things, houses, boats, DIY, SUVs and the rest of it such that household debt went from around 65% of disposable income in the 1980s to nearly 200% as it is today. The borrowing allowed households to maintain spending growth even as government spending became more constrained. The upshot was that economic growth was maintained by the private credit binge, which in turn maintained tax revenue growth. Without that credit binge, the economy would have gone into recession in the late 1990s and no surpluses would have been possible. So by the turn of the century, 
the stock of outstanding federal debt was very low. A lot of political miles were made of that by the Treasurer at the time, but soon major criticism emerged. Who do you think was complaining about the lack of debt available? You guessed it, major players in the financial markets, the investment banks, the speculators, the gamblers. They demanded that the government guarantee a certain quantity of debt be released each period, irrespective of the fiscal position of the government. The government agreed as a result of the inquiry to continue issuing debt to the private speculators, even though it continued to run fiscal surpluses. So what gives? If the public debt was necessary to fund the government deficits, as in the debt bomb narrative, why would they be issuing debt to the private markets when they were running surpluses? Well, it became clear that, in fact, the debt had nothing to do with funding government and everything to do with providing the financial markets with a risk-free asset on which to base their speculative gambling activities. When there was deep uncertainty about returns in the markets, the speculators could always move their funds into government debt as a safe haven. So when you see through the smokescreen, it becomes clear that the selling of debt to the private sector is not to fund government deficits, but rather to provide the gamblers with an elaborate form of corporate welfare. The other aspect of this episode was that the beneficiaries of that corporate welfare were among the most vocal in demanding government cut spending on welfare that helped the poorest people in our society. The typical double standard. One rule for us and another for them. Anyway, the game was up. The debt being issued by government had nothing to do with whether they were in deficit or surplus and all to do with providing a safe asset to the speculators upon which they could make huge profits. I'll be back next time. See you later. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Well, Kevin, that was Bill Mitchell taking us back into the wonderful world of government bonds. Yes, yes. When he was talking, when he says the government is issuing debt, mm. uh, if you don't understand what that means, when the government issues debt, it's selling bonds. Right. It's, it's selling bonds, and bonds are a, a risk-free asset. Um, so, so if you're something like a, a financial institution, like a superannuation company that wants to uh, invest and take risks – you need to have a part of your portfolio which is safe and secure, and and that's government bonds. There's nothing like a government bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, government <laughs> bonds are absolutely risk-free. So, so when Bill's talking about about corporate welfare, mm. it's a gift to yeah. to corporate entities to have this risk-free asset. It doesn't give a, a high return, but it gives a return. Yeah. Well, I just want to reminisce here <laughs> about yeah. what it was like when I first heard these MMT economists talking about these bonds. Yeah. And I don't think I even quite knew what a bond was. Like I knew that people who invested would buy bonds and I knew that they were kind of safer than stocks and shares. But I think that was about all I knew. Yeah. And so I didn't even know that there was this debate about what these bonds are doing, let alone that the MMT economists see it very differently from the mainstream economists and I didn't even know that the mainstream economists are seeing it in a way that is very misleading and that all of this has got something to do with what they call the government debt. So there's a whole sort of pile of things to get your head around when they start talking about government bonds. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of one misleading piece of information stacked upon another <laughs> uh, and, and you wonder why you don't understand it. Well, because it doesn't make sense. Well, but you and I both came to this with fresh ears, we, we didn't understand any of this. And then we oh. had it explained to us from an MMT perspective. Yeah. Um, so if we take it from the top and ask, you know, what is a bond? Do you reckon it's fair to say that a bond is like a contract or an agreement? For example, if I was issuing a bond and you were buying the bond, let's say you've got $100 in your pocket, then I'm giving you an agreement. And the agreement is saying that if you give me your $100 – 
at some point down the track, whether it's in three months or three years or 30 years, I will give you back your $100. But in the meantime, every now and then, I'm going to give you a little bit more money. So maybe once a quarter or something, I'm going to give you a dollar. Yeah. And of course, when you're doing that, when you're temporarily taking someone's money and giving them the money back plus a bit more money, that looks like a lot like borrowing. Yeah. So that's why everyone thinks the federal government is borrowing. And in fact, bonds in other circumstances, they are borrowing. So if a corporation issues corporate bonds, then it is effectively borrowing money off whoever's buying the bond. And if the state government issues state government bonds, it is borrowing money off whoever's buying the state government bonds. And I reckon it's only the MMT economists who sit back and go, well, hang on. Why is the federal government issuing bonds? Because we know that the Australian federal government doesn't have to go anywhere to borrow the money, to borrow Australian dollars in order to spend. Because the Australian federal government has only got one way it can spend, and that one way it can spend is by creating new dollars. So if you, for example, get a pension cheque and say $900 turns up in your bank account... That $900 is new money that the federal government has told your bank to type into your bank account. Yeah, it's, it's created by the Reserve Bank of Australia. And this is, this is the, the, the big difference between bonds that are issued by any other institution come with a risk because they don't create money. They, they have to uh, borrow money like the rest of us. There's only one entity that creates its own currency, and that's the federal government. So mm-hmm. that's why a federal government bond is risk-free because they can always create money money. to pay it back (laughs) and they can always create the money required to pay the interest on it. You don't have to be a very fancy financial person to figure out that you'll never lose your money on a a government bond. And and the other thing is if if you take any investment um, and it pays interest, the interest is is a payment for the risk. So therefore, a risk-free loan should attract no interest. Hmm. If, If there's no risk, there should be no no interest. There's no risk that you'll never get your money back. There is actually a slight risk that um, you could lose the value through inflation. But yeah, there's no risk that you won't get your money back. So federal government bonds are very different to other bonds because the federal government creates the money. So the big question is, why on earth is the federal government issuing bonds if it never has to borrow money in order to get Australian dollars? And the answer is what Bill just explained, which is, that the federal government is issuing bonds as a way for people with money to earn more money. And who are these people? It is all the people in the economy who have already saved money. So, for example, if I've got $100 in my bank account and Kevin's got $100 in his bank account and Bill Mitchell's got $5,000 in his bank account, the banks add up all those deposits and they use a proportion of all those bits and pieces of savings and they run off to the federal government and they say, look, we don't want this money just sitting here doing nothing. We want to earn a bit more money on this money. So we want to buy some of your bonds. The um, bank then has a guaranteed income. And what does it do with that income? Well, eventually that's going to go to the shareholders of the bank, the people who have money, who want more money. Money, yeah. And so the shareholders are benefiting from this little arrangement, which the government doesn't need to be doing at all. And so the banks are acting like that they're doing the government a favour. And this was revealed, the big fat lie that it is, when the Australian federal government was running surpluses back in the early 2000s. Costello in the early 2000s, you know. Like, why would you issue bonds if you're running a a government surplus? Why why does a government need to so-called borrow money by selling bonds? If it's, um, uh, if it's getting more so-called income, yeah. which is supposedly the taxes. So surplus is this idea that you're spending less as the government than you're getting back in taxes. So if you've got this supposed tax income where you don't need to be borrowing money, why would you be selling the bonds? 
And in fact, I think it was this case of where the neoliberal ideology for once, it was not working in favour of the people who have money who want more money. Yeah. Because the people who have money and want more money started arcing up when the government stopped selling these bonds because they thought they didn't have to borrow money anymore. And so they did this whole thing that Bill was talking about. They had this committee and they all got together and said, well, you know what? Even if we're running a surplus, we still have to sell bonds. Even if we uh, even if we don't need to borrow money in our fictional world where we think that we have to borrow money, um, we're going to borrow it anyway because you guys like the interest. <laughs> <laughs> so they changed the rules, even though it went against this story that they were telling all of us. Do, do you reckon? I'm just having listened to us talking. Like mm. I'm, I've just I've just risen above us and I'm hovering from the ceiling and, and I'm listening to this because when I heard all the stuff about bonds, I kind of glazed over. It does get confusing and the rest. Of it, but mm. I'm, I'm just wondering how Larry and Larissa are handling all of this this bond talk. Do you reckon they're following us? <laughs> are we torturing them with all this talk oh, of bonds? It, it is. It is somewhat. It's confusing. the hypocrisy that gets me, you know. And yeah. I think that's probably why Bill sounds so exasperated by the end of it. Do you know what it is? It's mm. a lie upon a lie upon a, a lie. lie. <laughs> you know when you when you know when you start lying and <laughs> then you've got to and lie you've got to create them. another lie to make yes. the first lie sound feasible. Essentially, that's what bonds are. So mm. if you don't understand all of this, just remember it's a lie upon a lie. It's a lie upon a lie upon a lie. Upon <laughs> the, the, the government does not need to borrow money for its spending because it creates the money. So the whole idea that it needs to issue bonds to pay for its expenditure is a lie, right? Mm. But then once they've said that lie and these people are benefiting from the system, that the lie that they've created to mm. fund their borrowing, and and, uh, and and then you have somebody like Costello come in and he achieves his, his aim of, of running a surplus, uh-huh. which means they don't have to... Um, issue these these lies about bonds anymore. Yeah, these pretend borrowing, well, fake the pe- borrowing. Well, the people that were enjoying the benefits of that lie have gone, hang on, we, we, <laughs> we're enjoying that lie. Yeah. And they've gone, rightio, well, yeah, we'll create another lie to, to cover that one. And uh-huh. you just end up in this quagmire of, of rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, I was thinking even that this, this requirement that they have, that they have to issue bonds. So now they have to issue bonds when they have a deficit and they have to issue bonds when they've got a surplus. And I was thinking, you know, this is a little bit like the private sector putting a tax on the government. It's like a fee that rich people have said to the government, anytime you're spending money, anytime you're using the power of the public purse, you need to give us a cut. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? I hadn't thought about that. It's like standover tactics, you know? And that is, look, this is this is the essence of neoliberalism. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm going to go off track here for a bit, if you don't mind, Anne. Go for it. But, you know, like, um, to try and make sense of where we are now, you have to go back in history and you have to have a look and, and see what happened 45 to 75, those years of Keynesian mm-hmm. uh, restructuring of the world economy. Uh, and then the wheels fell off in, in 1975. Mm-hmm. And it was like the Keynesian evolution needed to go the next step and it and it floundered with the OPEC oil crisis mm. which is when the traditionalists came in they said you know the model that we like we like the model where rich people have all the power and they get richer and richer and, we, and we're, we're sick of all this this hippie sharing stuff you mm. know um, uh, we want to go back to the old days and and this is what we're talking about where Rich people organise systems to get themselves a little payola mm-hmm. off, off every mm-hmm. every kind of transaction or, or, or the, way, the way the system works, you know. And yeah. well, it, when you say the wheels fell off, I think there was someone in there with a spanner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it was quite deliberate. Little little Milton Friedman down there under, underneath little the carriage, Milton, you know, that's just, right. just loosening the, the wheel nuts off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Kevin, I think we, we could head for a break now that yep. we've um, completely boggled the minds of poor old Larry and Larissa. I reckon they've got bonds. it. I reckon I understand the, the fallacy of, of you can go into it, but, but um, bonds are a lie and, and all that sort of stuff is a lie. It's a well, lie they upon do a lie exist, upon a lie. But the way they're talking about them is not true. We will take a break. But the, the one way to analyse it, what, what happens if they took the system away? Do you know what happened? Nothing. It'd be fine. Well, they might have to undo it gently because the finance sector might like... Well, they'd freak out, but it wouldn't change any government spending or anything. No, it, yeah. we could still spend. Anyway, let's go to break, and We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps.
You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. And we heard from heard from uh, Jar Wobbles, Jar Wobbles Invaders from the Heart, and that came about because uh, I knew I, there'd be a story. Well, like, like there's always it, there's always a good story for any song. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like um, uh, we lost Janae O'Connor just recently, yeah. and I didn't realise I didn't realise how punk she was. Like she's mm. she's um, uh, admirable. Like like she's got this this voice of an angel, but mm. but she's got this really punk attitude, you know. Like she just wasn't going to take it from anyone, um, and she didn't. Uh, anyway, so I, I was all very um, sad about that. At the same time that was happening, there was a fantastic documentary about um, John Lydon, who was um, had Public Image Limited uh, as his uh, adventure after uh, the uh, Sex Pistols broke up, and he's. Bass player was a fellow called Jar Wobble, and so Jar Wobble did this um, a collaboration with Sinead O'Connor, which was that song there. And that was it, which was called "Visions of You" uh, by Jar Wobble's Invaders of the Heart, and it's a great song. It's I love great, it. yeah. and I wouldn't have put it in the punk genre. <laughs> no, no, but, but they're both two hardcore punks. That's pretty, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we did hear about the app, the radio app, and I tried it out the other day. And if people want to try it out. Um, it's kind of like turning your smartphone into a good old-fashioned transistor radio. Right. <laughs> so you can walk around listening to 3CR with it. That's the – there's a, a community, community radio, radio app. app. Yeah, yeah. And, mm. and you can pick up all the community radios on yeah, it. Yeah, it's an amazing world of community radio on that app. Yeah, that's a nice collaboration. So we do have another letter, Kevin. We do have another letter. Yeah, that's good. I, I always find bonds a bit of a bit of a brain drain. Just remember, bonds are a lie. We don't need them. <laughs> it's corporate welfare, okay? And if you really it's, want to go through it, you can have a listen uh, to figure it all out. But what What's the next one? Do you know what the next one's about at all? Oh, uh, I think this is when uh, Bill goes to Japan, and I'm not Ooh. sure if he's there right as we speak because he pops in and out of Japan. He does. I think, he might, I think he might be on the way back over there again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh well, let's have a listen now. Okay. It's time for a letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello. Today I'm talking about the way in which cultural biases combined with a bias towards seeing things, if only tacitly, through the lens of mainstream economics and neoliberalism, pervert our understandings of the things we observe. I'm soon off again to work at Kyoto University in Japan for another year, and I'll be there again for several months. When I'm there, I live in a regular suburb near the university, and interact on a daily basis with the locals in the street and at the local shops. In doing that, I begin to learn the metre and the customs of the neighbourhood, and in turn, the society, in a way that tourists who come into a city and haunt the large tourist areas never do. It also motivates me to seek an understanding of the observations made while navigating daily life especially where practices appear different to those common in my country of origin, Australia in this case. And I have learned that the things I see can only be fully understood by using a sort of inner logic, that is by trying to put oneself in the local shoes, applying history, custom, etc., rather than interpreting phenomena that I see by using the logic that I might apply in Australia. I read a story in an Australian newspaper last week which was written by the travel expert which carried the title 10 Things We'll Never Understand About Japan. It caught my attention because I'm always trying to gain a deeper understanding of matters Japan. Two of the mysterious things about Japan that the travel writer mentioned were 1. Over-servicing and 2 pointless traffic controllers. The first claim was that the Japanese were surprisingly inefficient because when you enter a large shop in Japan there are always several uniformed people standing ready to greet and welcome you. The journal wondered how can they afford it? The second mystery related to the people you see in mostly blue uniforms with a flashing baton who pop up at road crossings and outside shopping centres. Their function is to direct traffic or pedestrians safely. The journalist rather arrogantly said that they are there 
just in case you're wondering what the zebra stripes are for. Viewed from a neoliberal English-speaking perspective, I can see why this journalist is confused and harshly judgmental. Even though as a travel writer, one should expect them to see things in a more culturally appropriate way. We're conditioned in Australia to think of productivity, which is the quantity of output produced per unit of input, in a very narrow way. A productive activity is one we think minimises inputs to get a desired output, which means it minimises private costs. Note the private here. A productive worker, according to this perspective, is one that maximises private profits for a capitalist enterprise. Here we are only counting private costs and benefits. And this restrictive view permeates what we define as efficiency, which in turn biases us against a range of activities that we dismiss as being unproductive or wasteful which is why we are biased towards dismissing public sector job creation programs as make-work schemes, painting rocks and other pejorative descriptions. I will talk more about these programs in another episode, but if we really want to see the essence of things that are before us, we have to take a broader perspective on what is productive. A factory that is considered highly productive in the narrow mainstream sense might be spewing out dangerous effluent into the water table which is not costed into their pricing. The difference between private and social matters. As for a private capitalist firm that only considers its own bottom line, the traffic controllers in Japan who direct people across zebra crossings or wave through cyclists across the front of shopping centre car parks are wasteful and unnecessary. But from the perspective of society, we would not draw that conclusion. These workers are employed. They are earning an income. They can risk manage the lives of their families. They are remaining connected to the community. They feel a sense of self-worth, contributing to the connectedness of their neighbourhoods. They sometimes exchange pleasantries and jokes, which lighten the day and add warmth to the personal experience. They are valuable contributors to society. These elements are what I consider to be vital components to a measure of productivity, a social concept. Last year I was talking to a boss of a firm in Kyoto and he told me that Japanese employers hate sacking people and will do everything they can to avoid that outcome. While Japan has infused many Western practices, particularly American traits, it remains a very inclusive and solidaristic society. It places a value on people being in employment and keeping unemployment very low. Its manufacturing sector is very productive in the narrow way that we tend to think of it, and Japanese engineers have defined best practice in many areas of industry. Its service sector is very unproductive in that narrow sense but plays a crucial role in binding society together and ensuring workers have jobs and incomes and can avoid poverty. That role makes these workers who greet the shoppers at the door or the wand wavers at the car park highly productive from a societal perspective. I'll be back next time. Until then, see you later and take care. We just heard from Professor Bill Mitchell talking about Japan. He likes Japan, uh, Bill. Mm. I've heard him speak a couple of times about Japan, and there's, uh, it's a, um, in some ways it seems rather restrictive. In other ways, it seems very considerate and very inclusive. And uh, well, one of the things Japan does is it runs its economy as though it fully understands MMT, although they kind of won't admit to it. They won't admit to it.
Yeah, we're not MMT. <laughs> we're just doing everything that Bill would say you should do to, to run an economy. Yeah, they don't care about uh, running up their their, their debt levels debt. Uh, mm-hmm. as a percentage of GDP. It's enormously high. Love it when the bond traders bet against them and then they lose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, he, and he likes the way that the government just keeps on thumping out the bonds and 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 doesn't care. Like uh-huh. it, it will spend and. What I really liked about this letter is Bill was pointing out something I'd never thought of before, which is how our cultural biases can be informed by our economic assumptions. Okay. And, of course, our economic assumptions are pretty potent because, you know, the neoliberals would happily have us not question our economic assumptions, so they stay pretty unconscious. Yeah. So this idea, for example, that everything should be efficient and the efficiency should be the, the number one thing that we're all striving for no matter what, which I, uh, there's two sides to this, but go on. I, I'm going well, to come back on you on this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. what I was going to say is that we can think of the economy as a system and a sure way to wreck a system is to maximise or prioritise just one part of the system over other parts. So if you're maximising or prioritising efficiency, for example, over the goodwill of your community, you're going to start wrecking your system. Well, I was about to say, let's let's say you're running an operation and you you can automate it. Uh, it's running efficiently. The amount of dull drudgery by humans to produce the product is minimised, and the whole uh, uh, product line is made more efficient. That's good, so long as the efficiency is shared. And mm. and this is where the problem lies: is that these um these workplaces become efficient requiring less workers and you'd like to see a dividend in that like I, mean, I think we've mentioned this a few times uh, it was a uh, Keynes John Maynard Keynes saying back in the 1930s that he reckons uh, at this stage we should be working 15 20 hour weeks now this is a guy who died before the age of computerization so it should probably be even less than that um, you know so if we could make things more efficiently and that was spread that meant you could work less. You could have more mm. time off. You could mm. become more involved in community activities, less involved in doing crap work. Uh, I've got no problems with that efficiency. That would be great. <laughs> but the, the problem we've got is the efficiencies are absorbed by the owners of mm-hmm. the of the business. Turned into their profit. It, it just increases their profits. And I reckon this is this is me speaking with no um, qualification whatsoever, which I know you love when I spout off in. But I reckon half of everything we spend mm-hmm. goes to making somebody who's rich, already ridiculously rich, even richer. I'd reckon so. Yeah. And you think about it. Every time you go to the shop to buy something and you buy some food, mm. how much of that does Monsanto? Mon- yeah, they- Monsanto. Yeah, mm-hmm. how much do the oil companies get? How Good much do, do the people that are the, the big owners of this stuff? You know, now, um, how rich do you have to be? Can, can't they be happy just being really rich without being <laughs> disgustingly rich? You know, and if they could just be happy with being really rich and spread the rest of that with the workers who are necessarily oh. working less because of automation and the rest of it, and everybody's standard of living rises and we're all happy people because inequality, inequality is not so rife because inequality is a big societal destroyer. Even if everybody is doing relatively well, it's it's not a question of being poor. It's about how you compare to other people. That, that's what that's what ruins societies. That's so, right. It's yeah. that it's that unequal spread. And you know, um, speaking of rich people who want to get richer, I have to give a shout out to Tim Gurner. He's a millionaire property developer who just recently was giving a speech where he said that we needed to increase unemployment and we needed to create some pain in the economy because workers are getting too uppity. Oh, we're getting too uppity. Mm-hmm. And this fellow, I looked him up and um, he has got a fitness club, but it's kind of like a longevity club. And guess where it is? I've got no idea. Collingwood. Collingwood. For $250,000, you can get the full package. What do you get for $250,000 to join a gym? Is that what you're talking about? It's a longevity club. So you can get all these, you know, serum injections and you get your biometrics measured every week and all sorts of stuff. People decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they they have been paid paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people 
that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market and that has to continue. This is an example of someone who lets slip what those who would uh, rule the workers really want, which is to see people get less pay and less wages. And I just think of how that contrasts with what Bill was talking about with these Japanese employers saying how they really don't like to lay people off. Yeah. And I really liked Bill's examples of these traffic controllers and these shop greeters. And it reminded me of an issue that um, I came across in my working life at one point in libraries. And I remember when there was this efficiency thing going on and they decided to cut back on staff. And what they did is they stopped staffing some of the help desks, right? especially at night, Mm -hmm. because they said, there's no one showing up. You've got nothing to do. We'll just get rid of you. Yep. And these were in these big institutional libraries with multiple levels And so what ended up happening is that people coming in felt really unsafe because they're in these dead quiet... With nobody there Nobody around, scary environments. So that's an example of where there's another characteristic or another quality that's not being recognised in the bottom line, which is a safe environment as opposed to just an efficient workplace. Yeah, Uh, I was just thinking uh, you're talking about the Japanese hate laying people off. I think maybe we should get a, somebody from Japan to be the new CEO of Qantas. That might be good. <laughs> bit of a, they could do, use a bit of a, a change of culture, I would have thought. We, just, could, we could do with a bit of the Japanese influence, could Yeah, we? yeah. No, I, I love the sound of it, though. It, it, sounds, it sounds like they've got something of a, a social responsibility mindset mm. where – which was – this is what we often talk about when we're talking about the post-World War II period in Australia, where if you're unemployed, they'd say, okay, we'll find you something, we'll find you mm. something, we'll look after you. Uh, we and, had a near full employment economy. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the other thing that was – coming out with this example of the traffic controllers and the shop greeters is Bill was painting a really great picture of the kinds of jobs that are both socially useful but they can also appear and disappear as the economy changes, as the economy goes through its cycle. So those kind of jobs can come and go but when you do them they improve your, your society and so those are precisely the kind of jobs that you want in a job guarantee. Yeah, that, that, those sorts of um, traffic management people sound, sound perfect for that. Because job guarantee jobs, they're going to fall out of the, uh, the private sector labour market. So you don't want to be competing with the private sector when you create job guarantee jobs. And you also don't want to be undermining the public sector with job guarantee jobs. So... Job guarantee jobs are not going to be part of the regular labour market. And so it can be a bit difficult to imagine, well, what kind of jobs are they if they're worth paying for and they're not in these standard markets? And it's precisely what Bill was just describing. Yeah. And I think that gives you a sense, too, of um, what a full employment economy that's being managed well starts to look like a well-being economy. And I kind of throw this word well-being around, but I feel like that that's giving us a bit of a picture of what that would look like. And before we head out today, Kevin, yeah. I have to remember not to say see you next time because I won't. Oh, you're going to take a couple of a couple of shows <laughs> off, aren't you? I am. Are you, are you going on? Is it, is it long service leave? <laughs> long <laughs> service is, is leave applicable? from Radio MMT. Yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll have a, a guest host in yeah. who is on another show here at 3CR. And his claim to fame is when I took a photo of him reading the MMT textbook and posted it up on our Radio MMT Facebook page. Yeah. But he is a fellow who's very interested in well-being economy. So you guys might end up having a bit of a discussion about that. Yeah, no, we've been talking about this, and we might get back to basics. This, this sort of comes back to something which I think we need to discuss. 
you hear about MMT and you go, right, okay, well, obviously everybody's going to hear this and we're going to just change the world because it makes so much sense and, and why wouldn't you change? And it doesn't. And you sort of go, ah. And so the kind of stamina of maintaining uh, an interest in something like uh, this would be a bit wearing. You sort of go, ah, oh, nothing's happening. And I, and I think that's that's a mistake. I think things are happening uh, mm. because you find somebody at the reception desk of 3CR who happens to be reading a, an MMT uh, textbook and we didn't tell him to do that. He did it by himself. That's right. And then you find out that all the major parties have people in their party who understand MMT and are having those little chats behind the, the there stages. There are rumblings, aren't there? You know, it's, it's seeping in. It's seeping in. And so long as it keeps on seeping in, like this, then one day we'll be turn- you and I will be out of a job. People are going, can you stop rabbiting on about the bleeding obvious, please? And we'll go, yeah, terrific, great. We'll just go to the, the, the pub straight away. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go direct to the pub. We we'll won't come the by pub. the studio. Yeah, everyone had to do this show anymore. That would be terrific. That means the revolution would have um, would have occurred and uh, and everything would uh, will be over and that would be lovely. Anyway, so, Kevin, yeah. uh, you're piloting next week. I'm piloting next week. Uh, with uh, what's, Who am I piloting with? Piloting with James. James, excellent. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm looking forward to this. If you're listening, yeah. James, looking forward to catching up and uh, doing some shows with you. And uh, we're going to go back to basics with James. We're just going to go back to basics. Right back to the MMT basics. Yep. Lovely. Excellent. Well, I can see the Mafalda crew. The Mafalda crew Vicky. are here, headed by Vicky. Uh, so do we, we've got to go. I think we have to head out. Okay. Have a nice break, Anne. Thank and, you. And we'll see you, I don't know, in November. You See you in about a month. See you in about a month. Bye. See you. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his MMTed.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomic band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. Well, we could call the band the Permanent Income Hypothesis or the Ricardian Equivalent or Rational Expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to, like, form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're get we need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40 50%, in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. Employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them, um, as opposed to the other way around. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market and that has to continue. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.